uh, before we get into our study, we want to have a, a word of prayer. So I invite you to uh, bow your heads with me. Let's uh, seek uh, the King uh, this morning. Father in heaven, we thank you so very, very much for this Holy Sabbath day and this opportunity that we have uh, to finish our week uh, with thee. And we come before you, we sing praises to you, and we come before you on our knees and our hearts are bowed, Lord, uh, asking uh, for the Holy Spirit to be poured out upon your people, especially as you've promised to do so on this Holy Sabbath day. We ask humbly that the Spirit will open our hearts and our minds to receive the truth and a love for the truth. And Father, we, we have... Uh, we have a short amount of time to, to be prepared. We see the signs of the time, and we wish to be prepared and to prepare others for the battle that looms on the horizon. Uh, but we need to be overcomers. We read this in your holy word, and we wish to know what it is that you would have us to do so that we may have victory. Father, we lift up before you those who couldn't be here today, those who uh, are sick and ill. We've mentioned them this morning. We pray that you be very, very near to each one. Uh, heal them, give them a living testimony of the healing power that only you have, and that uh, many may be brought to Jesus because of. We pray that you will forgive us for our sins where we have fallen short. We pray for the strength and the knowledge uh, to be overcomers and bring glory to thee. And Father, we thank you for Jesus who shed his blood there at Calvary for us and was a living example of how to live a life of righteousness. Help us to keep looking up to Him. And give me the words to speak this morning. We thank you, Lord, for hearing this prayer, for it is indeed asked in the name of Jesus, who is worthy to be praised. Amen. Amen and amen. Well, beloved, we have, we have come to a point in our studies concerning the sin issue uh, where I want to transition to what we can do in dealing with sin and its results, to have victory in our life. You see, beloved, some may be hearing these truths for the first time. And because of that, they may wonder, what happens now? What happens now that I know these things? <laughs> and, and so you see, they may be saying, well, you know, it's well and good to have a knowledge of what sin is, and to understand the meanings, you know, the definitions, and where it leads. Well, we know where it ultimately leads, it leads don't we? The death for eternity uh, for the sinner unless there's a change. And so they ask, but I know all these things, but what can be done about it? Am I left without hope? And friends, in our world today, when we look around, we see... Uh, incredible devastation. We see the results of sin, don't we? We see the fruit of disobedience every single day in this what's-in-it-for-me world because millions, and this is the reason they have this attitude, this is the heart of their attitude, they see no hope in anything or anyone. And surely that isn't all there is. You know, like Paul said in Hebrews 10.27, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries, which means, you could say sinners, which shall devour 
the sinners. Surely there is hope somewhere. And it would indeed be cruel of God to bring you to this knowledge about sin without also giving you hope and escaping the results of it. And friends, I will tell you, this is where having faith comes into play. The story is told in Acts chapter 2 of Peter standing up and sharing with the people the story of Jesus and his death, sharing the reason and the cause of it, plainly stated, sin and its ultimate result. And that is that we are the cause for the death of the Messiah. And what was the response of those who heard his preaching? In Acts chapter 2, let's read it. Verses 37 and 38. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Well, friends, we've come to that point in our series where people ask, as these men did, What shall we do? And of course, Peter gives the answer, doesn't he? We've learned that in our present condition, uh, that there is no way that we could ever, in fact, if we had all eternity to try, we could never hit the mark of God on our own. We would always fall short of it, no matter how hard we tried to hit it. And friends, it's always been this way. It's always been this way. Man was not created with the ability to hit the mark of God on his own, for to do so would make him God. It would make him naturally immortal, as God is. So no, friends, man was created a mortal in the image of God, and he was wrapped in the robe of God's righteousness, meaning he was, he was given power from God to be obedient. He was a human that was filled with the Spirit of God. The freedom, and we've studied this uh, earlier on in this series, the freedom to choose was given to man, but the ability to do righteousness comes only when we are connected to God in that spiritual plane. So man must choose to be obedient, you see, and that is the choice that we have. But the ability never comes from within us. It never has, and it never will. Notice this statement. This is from Patriarchs and Prophets, page 45. And speaking of Adam and Eve there, it says the sinless pair wore no artificial garments. They were clothed with a covering of light and glory, such as the angels wear. So long as they lived in obedience to God, this robe of light continued to enshroud them. That robe, friends, that robe of light, that was an outward sign of having an inward connection with God. 
And we're familiar with the story of our first parents, aren't we? And how they lost that robe through disobedience. But wouldn't you like to know how you can have a robe like that? How you can be a friend of God like that? What must be done for me to receive that robe? That robe of Christ? Well, friends, let me give you hope by telling you that something has already been done for you to receive a robe like that. And this accomplishment is offered to you freely, just like it was to Adam and Eve before they chose to disobey. Do you believe me? Well, I don't ask that you believe me, but do you believe God? I want to spend some time in the next few studies laying out how to overcome sin and have that robe that Christ offers. The subject of this particular study is one that nearly, well, all Christians and non-Christians alike think they understand. Uh, but many really don't when you see what the Bible teaches. You look at the Bible and what, the, what it teaches and you see that so many people just don't understand the subject. There are many people today who have false ideas about the nature of this subject of true repentance. And I'd like to take some time to talk about it with you uh, on this Holy Sabbath day. I know people, personally, that think they can't come to, to Christ unless they first repent. And, and that this is what will prepare them to be forgiven of their sins. And it's true that repentance does come before forgiveness because it's only those that understand um, their true condition before God as sinners that can feel their need of a Savior. you got to understand that you have a problem, right, before you are inclined to have it fixed. <laughs> Isn't that true? But does the sinner have to wait until they repent before they can come to Jesus? Is repentance some kind of barrier that prevents us from uh, um, getting the help we need so we can be forgiven and have the hope of eternal life? Well, to answer this, I first want to look at the account of the wilderness journey of the Israelites. You know, we're told that the, the, what they went through there in the wilderness are examples for us so that we may have understanding. Now, there are many lessons for us in those examples, of course, but I want to look at one in particular. So let's go to Numbers uh, chapter 21. I want to go to Numbers 21. 21. I'll begin with verse 5. And the people spake against God and against Moses, Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. Kind of contradictory there, isn't it? Hey, we don't have any bread, and we don't like this light bread. Hmm. Verse 6, And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, 
when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Now, we have the setting, don't we? The murmurings of the children of Israel, well, they were pretty unreasonable, weren't they? And have you noticed, maybe you've had this experience, because I've had this experience. Have you noticed that, uh, that the unreasonable, people who are unreasonable, always seem to go to extremes? Maybe you haven't noticed that, but boy, I have. And notice that was the case here. They lied in saying that they had no bread or water. The fact is that they had both. And they didn't have to do anything for it. Except get it. Go out and collect it. It was given to them by a miracle of God's mercy. To punish them for their ingratitude and complaining against God, the Lord permitted fiery serpents to bite them. Now they were called fiery because their bite produced painful swelling and a very quick death. That's what sin does to us. It can be very quick. It can kill you quickly. Now the Israelites, up to this time, they'd been preserved from these serpents in the wilderness by a continual miracle. For the wilderness through uh, which they traveled was infested with all kinds of poisonous snakes and dangers. I mean, it's not like God threw these snakes at them out of the blue. What had happened was God had removed his protective care because of their murmuring, their lack of faith. And Moses told the people that it was God who had preserved them, that the serpents had not previously harmed them because it was a token of his care for them. He told them it was because of their needless murmurings, their complaining of the hardships in their journey that God had permitted them to be bitten by the serpents. You see, it goes back to that choice again, doesn't it? God will not coerce us to do what's right. We have to choose. And if we choose not to and we ignore God, we basically are pushing God away. And He can't protect us from the devil and from danger if we show that kind of lack of faith. Now, don't get me wrong. God will do whatever He can to reach us. We'll see as we get further along in this that that's the case. Now, if you're familiar with their travel in the wilderness, you'll notice that there was, uh, what was it about this group that, that really kind of stood out? I mean, if you've seen them, if you were uh, a nomad, or, you know, the, the old saying is, I wish I was a fly on the wall. <laughs> if you were a traveling nomad and you, you came upon this group of people, one of the things that you would would notice that really stuck out was that there was no sickness among these people. Their feet hadn't swollen no matter all the miles that they had traveled through that wilderness. Their clothes were like new. They weren't tattered. They weren't ragged. And you'll, you would notice their diet, right? God had given them angels' food. That's what manna was called. And they had the purest water available on the whole planet. It came out of the rock. These people 
were provided the necessities. Now, they didn't have luxuries, but they had the necessities. And this care for their necessities, friends, it really showed how much God truly loved them. And so if you came upon these people, and you never knew them before, you think they serve a mighty God. They have a mighty protector who provides their necessities. Look, there's no sickness. There's no... And you know, there's an example there of the remnant that will be here on this earth going through the final battle. People will come upon them and say, there's something different about these people. Something righteous about these people. And yet, what did they do? God provided all these necessities, and what did they do? They murmured and they complained. And so when they did, God would allow judgments to come upon them for their ingratitude, hoping to make them realize that it was because of his merciful love and care for them that they had been surviving, of which they had been unmindful. And God allows those things to bring our attention back to him. We go through tests and trials, don't we? And what is our response? Do we complain and murmur? Think about that. So, Moses was directed to erect a brazen serpent upon a pole. And if those who were bitten looked upon that, they would live. They would be healed. And so you can clearly see right here that the Israelites were required to do something to be saved from death. They must look upon the brazen serpent if they would live. They must show faith in God's word and look up. Now many had died by the bite of those serpents. That's what we just read. And when Moses raised the serpent upon the pole, some had no faith at all that merely looking at that would heal them. And what was the result? They died. Mothers, fathers, brothers and sisters, children, they were all trying to get their suffering, dying relatives and friends to look up. <laughs> Just look up. Look up upon the serpent on the pole. And if they could only once look while fainting and dying, they revived. They were healed of all the effects of their poisonous wounds. Now, what kind of power did this brass serpent possess that it would heal anyone who gazed upon it? Well, friends, there is no virtue or supernatural power in the serpent of brass itself. The healing received by their looking upon the serpent, it came from God alone. And God chose this manner to display his power, his love, his compassion, his power. And what did it take for the people to receive the healing power? All they had to do was look up at that brass serpent raised up upon a pole that was above them. And this was an act of faith, and it had to be exercised, or you would die from the snake bite. You see, friends, this is a very good lesson for us. The act of looking upon upward showed their faith in the Son of God, whom the brass serpent represented. That Messiah that was to come and die for our sins. That's what it represented. And Jesus was referring to this exact incident when he said in John 3, 14 and 15, 
And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Referring to his death on a cross. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And you all know what the very next verse says, don't you? For God so loved the world that he gave. (laughs) I'm amazed at how many people have memorized John 3.16, but they don't know the verses before and after it, which are just as important. Incredible promise of God and love towards us. It's amazing how much God loves us. And Jesus also said in John 12, verse 32, He said, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. And Paul says, that Jesus became sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And that's what we're talking about. How to overcome sin. How do we become, how do we be made the righteousness of God in Christ? (laughs) That was out of 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, friends, is all the time drawing people to himself. And while he's doing that, you know what the devil's doing, don't you? He's doing everything he can to draw people away from Jesus. Because you see, there's a spiritual battle going on for your mind, for your soul, for you. And a lot of people aren't even aware of that. We talked about that in that series of studies we did about spiritual possession. It's incredible how blind we human beings really are to the war that's going on around us, the spiritual battle. But somehow, maybe through you, uh, maybe through me, maybe by a person just reading the Word of God, Christ has to be made known to the sinner. That He died for their sins. And as they look to the cross of Calvary where Jesus was lifted up, the plan of salvation will begin to unfold to their mind. This is what, how the Holy Spirit works, friends. And it's this great sacrifice of God in giving His Son that will lead them to repentance. You know, friends, God's not trying to make salvation difficult. It's people that do that. He wants everyone to be saved, and everyone can be saved if they will. If they'll look up. (laughs) I remember like it was yesterday, and yet it was over 30 years ago when the Savior was lifted up to me. uh, In my particular case, it was through my brother. And Jesus drew me to himself. I literally knew nothing, friends, of the Bible. and, and, And nothing about the way of salvation. But when I heard what Jesus went through for me, you see, it's very personal. It's very personal for each and every one of us because Jesus is a personal God. But when I saw what he went through for me and that he was willing to take the punishment that I deserved and that by accepting him as my Savior from sin I could be forgiven for all my past mistakes and enter into a new and living relationship, a friendship with Christ, and because of that, I have eternal life. I fell to my 
knees all broken. It does something to you, friends. I fell at the foot of the cross. I remember exactly when it happened. I don't remember the exact day, the date, or the day of the week. I can narrow it down if I think hard enough. Uh, but I know I was working at Purdue University on the night shift. And uh, I was getting to know Christ, studying the Bible. I would go in early to work and uh, because I had time by myself. And I would get the Bible out and I would uh, uh, do Bible studies. And I was just hit this particular night uh, with my sins what it caused. And I fell to my knees that night, right at that moment, and gave myself to Jesus. He brought me to repentance, you see. And the repentance that was given to me that day was a gift. And it had nothing to do with my own intelligence of, of learning the Scriptures or some goodness of my own. But it had everything to do with the love that came from the throne of God to a sinner such as I. That love, you see, drew me to Jesus, and I, I surrendered to it. The repentance came from God. You see, friends, the Bible does, doesn't teach that the sinner has to repent before they can take advantage of the invitation that Jesus himself gives. Like the one in Matthew 11 and verse 28. He says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He doesn't say, go in and take a bath, get all cleaned up, put on your best clothes, and try very hard to travel here to where I am. He says, just come unto me. And I will give you rest. And the rest that Jesus spoke of here is a rest or a cessation from sin. You see, we can labor all we want to to correct our sinful habits, but we'll meet with defeat every single time. It's been my experience. It's been the experience I've seen in others. That's what the Bible says, even. I have no reason to doubt that that's true. We're going to miss the mark every time unless we come to God first. And we can't come until we're drawn by God's love. Now, I want you to know that that love is drawing us all the time. But we need to be in a condition to where we can recognize it, you see. Like I said before, you got to know you have a problem before you can uh, take steps to repair it, to fix it. And there are many people today who are tired of the way they've been living, just like I was. But they're never going to find a better and more satisfying way to live until they heed the invitation to come to Jesus for the help that they need, for that rest that only He can provide. Everyone who wants to be saved from sin must come to Christ and see Him, and only Him, as their Savior so they can be enabled to repent. It says in Acts 4, verse 12, Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The rest that we need from sin, the rest that we human beings must have, 
only comes from Christ. Every other rest that's promised is a fraud. And friends, if a sinner could repent without coming to Christ, do you realize that they could also be saved without Christ? And that's never going to happen. It cannot happen. That's why we can't come to repentance on our own. We need help to feel sorry for sin and to have the desire and power to turn away from it. It's not something we can manufacture on our own. We cannot uh, convict our own heart of wrongs. All repentance and conviction of heart, you see, it comes from the Holy Spirit. Let's look at John chapter 16. And uh, I'm going to read, begin with verse 8. John 16, verse 8. And this is Jesus, and he's speaking about the Holy Spirit, you see. And he says, And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin, because they believe not on me, of righteousness, because I go to my Father and ye see me no more, of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. You see, the Holy Spirit convicts men of their sin. He points them to the salvation and righteousness that is only in Jesus Christ and warns them of the consequences of continuing in their sins and of neglecting the salvation that is freely offered to them. And it's only the moral goodness that goes forth from Christ that can lead to genuine repentance. And I'm a living witness to that. And so is everyone who's experienced conversion. And I believe that the Apostle Peter um, makes this point very clear. In Acts chapter 5, verse 31, it says, Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So you see, repentance is given. It's not something we choose to do on our own. And it comes before forgiveness. So since we can't forgive ourselves, neither can we repent of ourselves. You remember Peter there, he had, in Acts 3, he had healed a lame man. And he was speaking to the Jews after doing that. And I want you to notice what he says in Acts 3, verses 25 and 26. Because Peter told him something very important. And, and, and a lot of people, a lot of Christians, they miss this. He said, Ye are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, And in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. Notice what he says in verse 26. He says, Unto you... First God, having raised up His Son Jesus, sent Him to bless you in turning away every one of you from His iniquities. You see, the blessing of God came through the death and resurrection of Christ for the purpose of turning away every one of us from our sins. And that's what repentance does. Repentance is not only sorrow for sin, but a turning away from it. 
And this blessing, we're told, comes as a result of the resurrection of Christ. Because you see, Christ overcame sin. The proof is in that he was resurrected. Sin couldn't hold him in the grave because there was none in him. And so repentance is as much the gift of God as is forgiveness. And it will never be found in your heart unless Jesus has first been at work there, you see. We can no more repent without the Spirit of Christ to awaken our conscience than we can be forgiven without Christ. So Christ, He draws the sinner because of His love exhibited on the cross. And as this love softens the heart and impresses the mind, it'll bring grief to the heart for having offended a holy God by breaking His Ten Commandments. And that is what will bring true sorrow to the soul. And once the sorrow comes, Jesus will then take it away through forgiveness and replace it with joy and happiness. And I'm telling you, friends, that this is what everyone is really looking for. Now, there are some people that become absolutely ashamed of their sinful ways and give up some of their evil habits uh, even before they're consciously motivated to come to Christ. But I'll tell you, unbeknownst to them, it's the power of the Holy Spirit that's actually drawing them to make reforms uh, in the first place. A holy influence that they're unconscious of is working upon their heart and mind and their conscience becomes sensitive. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He softens our heart. And so they may think that they corrected their own bad habits or made positive changes in their lives on their own, but it's God who's at work in their lives and they, they just don't recognize it yet. In James chapter 1, verse 17, remember what he says, he says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. So whether we know it or not, repentance is one of those good and perfect gifts. See? And it comes from God, from above. And so as Christ continues to draw sinners to himself, and if, if sinners do not resist that drawing, He'll cause them to look upon the cross. To look upon Him whom their sins have pierced and the wickedness of their lives and the deep-seated sin of their souls will be revealed to them. And let me tell you, friends, that no one can be honest about your true condition. No one can be more honest than the Holy Spirit can be. You don't have a friend in this world that's going to be more honest to you about your condition than the Holy Spirit is. And this kind of repentance, uh, it's beyond the reach of our own power to accomplish because it's obtained only from Christ. He's the only one who can stir our sinful hearts to cooperate with Him. And, and, uh, and that's the key word right there, cooperate. If we cooperate with Him, He will create within us a hatred of sin. 
Notice this. This is a, a quote from the book Messages to Young People, page 147. Messages to Young People, pages 147. It says, here are revealed the conditions of success. Do you want to be successful in your battle with sin? I sure do. Here are revealed the conditions of success. To make God's grace our own, we must act our part. The Lord does not propose to perform for us either the willing or the doing. His grace is given to work in us to will and to do, but never as a substitute for our effort. And friends, there is a counterfeit righteousness by faith that's in Adventism even that basically says, you don't have to do a thing, God does it all. Be very careful of that. His grace is given to work in us to will and to do, but never as a substitute for our effort. Our souls are to be aroused to cooperate. And that's what repentance does, see? Our souls are to be aroused to cooperate. The Holy Spirit works in us that we may work out our own salvation. This is the practical lesson the Holy Spirit is striving to teach us. So, God gives us opportunities. And success depends upon the use we make, you see, of those opportunities. In Genesis 3 and verse 15, that's where the promise, uh, after sin, that's where the promise was given to us. In Genesis 3.15, God said to the serpent, remember, I will put enmity, and we know enmity means hatred, so he says, I will put hatred between thee and the woman, the woman representing the church, God's church, and between thy seed, that's the followers of Satan's church, the synagogue of Satan, and her seed, God's church, and those who belong to it. So Genesis 3.15, God is saying, I'm going to put a hatred in my people for you. And for sin. Praise God, praise God, praise God. Because without that, without God being uh, uh, loving enough to do that for us, there is no hope for us. Here we are, in a lost condition, having hearts that hate God. And can only but choose sin and because God loves and pities His children, He provides a means by which they can choose to love Him and hate sin. Again, praise God, praise God, praise God. If we hate sin, friends, if we hate sin, don't you think it'll be much easier to give it up? <laughs> right? You see, that's the real problem with sin, isn't it? Well, it's one of them. There are too many of us that try to give it up without hating it. <laughs> yeah, my wife... <laughs> yeah, that's a nice example, honey. My wife just said, I don't have a problem giving up cooked spinach because I hate it. <laughs> I think hate is a strong word. This 
like it. I mean, I, I dislike it a lot. <laughs> I like it. But it's true, isn't it? And, and like I said, the, the, the problem is that too many of us try to give sin up without hating it, and that's why we go back to it, you know, after a short time. It's kind of like New Year's resolutions. You know, we have, we have good intentions, but before long we're right back to our old ways, and even worse, because every time you try and fail, you become less confident that you'll ever be able to quit for good. And friends, thank God that that He never gives up on us like we give up on ourselves. Amen? Praise God. Now we learned in our, our last study that the only way we can really come to hate sin is to partake of the divine nature. And we read about that in 2 Peter 1 verse 4, remember? Peter says, Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. These are the the promises that God has in His Holy Word for us. And they are meant to give us hope and to give us victory as we have faith in them and carry them out. Claim those promises. Act upon those promises. Because Peter says that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And friends, that's not something that that you can do for yourself. Receiving a new nature is something that happens after repentance and confession of sin. And unless God uh, gives you a new nature that's inclined to obey Him from a heart of love, you're never going to stop sinning. And if all you have is the fallen sinful nature, you won't choose to obey because sin is all our fallen nature knows uh, how to do. In fact, not only is it all that we know how to do, our sinful nature, it loves to do it. And like I said before, self will always defend self and it will never kill itself. It's never going to commit suicide. Self has to be crucified. It has to be put to death. It has to be killed. In Galatians 2 verse 20, Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. He's talking about self. He's not committing physical suicide. He's putting self to death. Or choosing to have it put to death. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Oh, friends, you may, you know, you may be able to fool people with outward obedience because they can't see what's really going on you know, in your mind, in your heart. But God can see it. And only God and the person themselves really know. Uh, but we can even fool ourselves, can't we? Can't we fool ourselves into thinking that we're better than we really are? And so our own mind is not really a safe guide when it comes to knowing our true condition. Isn't that right? Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Hmm? And Proverbs 28, 26, you know what it says? He that trusts in his own heart is a fool. Fool. You fool. And so, we're in a terrible condition, aren't we? 
How in the world are we ever going to know our true condition before God if we can't trust our own judgment? Well, friends, the answer is that we need to get very close to Jesus. (laughs) The Holy Spirit will, will tell us what our true condition is. But we need to have a spiritual ear to hear. Let me share this with you. It's from the book Steps to Christ, page 65. The closer you come to Jesus, the more faulty you will appear in your own eyes. For your vision will be clearer and your imperfections will be seen in broad and distinct contrast to His perfect nature. This is evidence that Satan's delusions have lost their power, that the vivifying influence of the Spirit of God is arousing you. No deep-seated love for Jesus can dwell in the heart that does not realize its own sinfulness. The soul that is transformed by the grace of Christ will admire His divine character. But if we do not see our own moral deformity, it is unmistakable evidence that we have not had a view of the beauty and excellence of Christ. Let me say that again. If we do not see our own moral deformity, it is unmistakable evidence that we have not had a view of the beauty and excellence of Christ. And friends, it's been my experience that if a, uh, well, personally, and and I have the experience with others, that if a person is finding it impossible to overcome sin, it's probably because they're not spending enough time in prayer and in study and viewing Christ. Her words are so true. As you read the Gospels, I mean, let's look at Jesus. I mean, you find that Jesus spent a lot of time in earnest prayer. And not just for Himself, but in behalf of those for whose salvation He had left heaven to come to this earth. And if Jesus is our example, how essential it is for us to pray and not be discouraged. How important that we should be instant in prayer, asking for the help that can only come from Christ. And if we will find voice and time to pray, God will find time and voice to answer. And uh, it's really that simple. (laughs) And I may at some time, uh, I'll probably go through the steps involved in prayer Again, because there's a science to it uh, that the Bible lays out. And uh, there's a way to do it. You know, you look at the Lord's Prayer and Jesus lays out some principles involved. And the Bible is a book of principles, isn't it? And when we talk about repentance, we're actually talking about the first step in the process of justification, which simply means forgiveness. Very, very simply means. It's a big word that simply means forgiveness. And, and some of you may be thinking uh, that these things are too elementary, what I'm talking about here now. It's too simple. That we should move on and talk about, you know, uh, other things like you know, last day events and, and uh, maybe, maybe things we haven't heard before. Things that are quote, new light. 
there's a lot of supposed, quote, new light out there. We need to uh, be careful about that, friends. Uh, but I want to tell you something. You can learn new things about repentance, can't you? And there's no danger of spending too much time thinking about the subject of justification by faith, is there? By the way, justification by faith is what the third angel's message is about. Do you know that? Now we talk about uh, the importance, uh, us Adventists, you know, we talk about the importance of not receiving the mark of the beast. Well, that's, that's uh, present truth, isn't it? Well, being justified by faith is how that happens. And repentance is how it all starts. It's the first step in the process. So when I talk about repentance, friends, I am talking about last date event, events because this subject is going to be present truth. You realize this? It's going to be present truth until human probation closes. It's more necessary. Let me say it this way. It is actually more necessary to understand and experience uh, uh, repentance than prophecy charts are or who composes the 144,000 or, or, or who the king of the north is or what the daily is or, or whether or not Armageddon is a literal or spiritual battle or whether or not we should keep the feast days or a dozen other things that are wafting throughout Adventism. Not that a proper understanding of these things aren't important, friends, because I've preached about all of them in the past. But dear friends, you can understand all of these various things and understand them better than anyone else. But if you don't repent of your sins, all the knowledge in the world about everything else won't help you one bit. You will be lost. We have a problem in the Advent movement today because people aren't being properly instructed in justification by faith as it's taught in the Bible. They're being instructed in, a, in, in half a gospel that teaches people they can be saved in sin. And if we don't understand and experience true repentance, we don't understand the third angel's message. And if we don't understand the third angel's message, we don't understand justification by faith because these truths are all wrapped up together. They're all connected. And repentance is the first step in that learning process. And so repentance is definitely a part of the third angel's message that we're to take to the world in these last days. Just quickly, let me share this quote with you. It's from Review and Herald, April 1st, 1890. Quote, Several have written to me inquiring if the message of justification by faith is the third angel's message, and I have answered... It is the third angel's message in verity. Let me ask you something, friends. In particular, you Adventists. You people of the book. Have you read through the four verses of Revelation 14, 9 through 12 uh, to determine which of those verses compose a justification by faith message? Have you ever done that? If someone were to ask you to explain how this can be, what would you say? Well, I think it's important enough to take a couple minutes to consider that, don't you? 
Let's read through the third angel's message and see if we can find justification by faith there. I mean, since the third angel's message is justification by faith in verity, which means it's the most important point of the message, then it ought to be real easy to find, right? Let's go to Revelation 14. Verse 9, And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image, and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. The smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast in his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Well, so far do you see a justification by faith message in these three verses? I mean, I look at them and I see reasons for repentance. I see incentive to become justified. I see a fearful scene that I don't want to be a part of. Do you? And I see a warning. But I don't see the elements or an explanation of how to become justified by faith. Do you? Therefore, it must be in verse 12. It's got to be in that verse, right? Let's read on. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Well, first of all, what's a saint? It says here is the patience of the saints. Well, by de definition, a saint is someone who is holy. Do you realize, uh, and maybe some of you know this, maybe all of you know it, I don't know, but the word saint and holy are the same word in the Greek? Did you know that? Now tell me, is Jesus a saint? Absolutely he is. In fact, Revelation 15.3 says he is the king of saints. Uh, is he holy? Well, absolutely, Jesus is holy. In Revelation 4.8, the holy angels, when referring to Jesus, what do they sing? Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. So if I'm crucified with Christ, as Paul says, and yet still live, if by faith Christ, live, Christ lives in me, can I live a holy life? Can Christ live out his life within me? Yes. And as long as I stay dead to selfish desire, I won't sin anymore than a corpse does. A person can die a sinner, friends, but they can't be dead and still sin. So we're either saints or sinners, but we can't be both. There's a lot of that that's taught today. We're either one or the other, though, friends. Let me share some things with you. This is from the Youth's Instructor, February 4, 1897. The eternal God has drawn the line of distinction between the saint and the sinner, between the converted and unconverted. The two classes do not blend into each other imperceptibly, like the colors of a rainbow, but are as distinct as midday and midnight. Well, this statement tells us that saints are converted and sinners are the unconverted. Isn't that what it says? Let's look at another one. Review and Herald, December 4th. 1900. Christ speaks of the church over which Satan presides as the synagogue of Satan. 
Its members are the children of disobedience. They are those who choose to sin. We need to understand that. They are those who choose to sin. What church are you a member of, friends? If sinners are members of the synagogue of Satan, then saints must be members of the church of Christ. Amen? And by the way, um, the denomination you belong to can't save you because there's no virtue in a name, friends. Uh, and yet there are people that will take you to court and sue you over it and those that will fight it and allow themselves to be sued. I find that just remarkable. Don't you? That's just remarkable. Uh, here's another. Manuscript released, volume 21, page 350. No one can occupy middle ground. Men and women are either saints or sinners, either entitled to a glorious life of eternity or doomed to eternal death. I think it's pretty clear, isn't it? We are all one or the other, but not both. Signs of the Times, August 22, 1900. The sinner must freely surrender his own will to God and accept Christ as his substitute and surety. He must rely upon him as the only one who can change a sinner to a saint. Do you want that change, friends? Do you want that change? If the answer is yes, then you must freely surrender your will to God when you're called to repentance. Paul says in Romans 5, verse 19, he says, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one, that's Jesus, shall, be, shall many be made righteous. Or we could say made holy. Or we could say uh, be made saints. Here's one last one I'll share. Uh, Sermons and Talks, Volume 1, page 343. God does not live in the sinner. The Word declares that He abides only in the hearts of those who love Him and do righteousness. God does not abide in the heart of the sinner. It is the enemy who abides there. I tell you, friends, I find these statements very interesting since there are many today who will try to convince you that you can be a saint and a sinner at the same time, which according to what we just read is impossible. Having a fallen nature uh, makes you a sinner if you yield to sin. Remember, remember our definitions of what sin is. Now, we've all done that, right? But friends, if we crucify the desires of the fallen flesh and live according to the dictates of the divine nature, we're not going to engage in sin. And John talks about that in 1 John 3. It's very clear there. Now, Paul said in Romans 1 and verse 7, he said, we are called to be saints. Not only when we get to heaven, but here and now. That's why Paul said it. And the third angel's message also indicates there's going to be a remnant who will have the patience of a saint. And friends, it all starts with repentance. And before I close, uh, let me give you just a few examples to think about of false repentance. 
Because there are many people that sorrow over their sins and even make an outward change, but their motives are all wrong. They do it not because they they fear and love God or because they understand how their their sins hurt uh, uh, the one you know that created and died for them, but because they think it'll bring some sort of well suffering upon them themselves. They needed to be punished and then move on. See, and and, and this is the kind of uh, repentance that um, Esau had, for example, when he saw that the blessing of the birthright was forever lost. Um, and you remember Balaam, uh, when he became terrified by an angel with a drawn sword standing in the pathway. That's the kind of repentance that he had. He acknowledged his guilt, you see, when his life was at stake. Uh, but there was no genuine repentance for his sin or any kind of hatred of evil. Remember Achan, we had talked about him in our series. Achan only confessed his sin when confronted by Joshua. He didn't show any true repentance. He let it all played out with the hope that they would never find that it was him. And when they did find it was him, he acknowledged it but had no sorrow for it. No true repentance for it. And, of course, after betraying the Lord with a kiss, Judas cried out, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. However, his confession was forced from his guilty soul by an awful sense of condemnation. And, as Paul said, a fearful looking for of judgment. And not because he felt real remorse. Friends, all of these people mourn. They mourned over that sin. They mourned over the consequences of sin, but didn't sorrow for the sin itself. And so when Satan comes and he tells you, friends, because he will, he'll come, he wants to discourage you, and he'll come and he'll say, you're a great sinner, God does not love you. There's no hope for you. Friends, you need to look up. <laughs> Remember those Israelites bitten by the snake? The serpent comes and he bites you. Look up. Look up to your Redeemer and talk of His righteousness which He freely gives to every repenting sinner. And friends, when we see the length of the chain that was let down to save us, when we understand something of the infinite sacrifice that Christ made in our behalf, our heart will melt because of so great a love. And true repentance will be given and forgiveness, friends, follows closely with it. Repentance is the first step to receiving that robe that only Christ can provide. And I want to encourage you to take that first step today. Take it today, friends. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we again thank you so much for Jesus, our example in all things, how to live a righteous life, how to overcome sin. Help us to exercise faith. I think of the man who, who came to Jesus and, and said, Help thou mine unbelief. I believe, Lord, 
help thou my unbelief. And the prophet tells us that as long as we can do that, we come to you with a broken heart such as that, we will never be lost. Father, we we fail so often. We believe. Help thou our unbelief. Give us of the Spirit so that we may rebuke the devil. Give us repentance. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.